podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Gareth Roberts and it's an Anfield Rap special. I'm joined by the author Simon Hart and we're going to have a chat about his book, World in Motion, the inside story of Italia 90, the tournament that changed football. Um, we are about to watch another World Cup and everyone's starting to get excited about that and I'm picking the teams out and deciding whether they support England or not. Uh, we won't be getting into all that, I don't think. We're just going to talk about the books, I, and uh, the, the 1990 World Cup. Um, I was delighted when I was sent this. I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest with you because um, this is the first World Cup that really revealed my inner nerd. I've still got an exercise book in ours where I tracked every single match, wrote down who scored, the attendances, drew little flags, the full it. So I was I was delighted that this came through because I thought this is the, you know, I remember 86 and I got involved with 86, but 90 was the one I think I really engaged in. I was sort of 14-ish at that time. Um, and it feels like, you know, obviously I know a lot of people my age and they're all exactly the same. They love this particular World Cup. Um, they've heard me talking about the book and they're already interested. So, I mean, was it similar reasons of your own that you wanted to write specifically about this World Cup? Is this the first one that's special to you? Um, well, yeah, I was 17 in, in 1990, so um, I suppose Spain 82 would have been the first World yeah. Cup that I that I watched. And, you know, I remember running home from school to watch games and so on. But uh, but 90 was, you know, anything that happens to you that's a big thing when you're 17 is going to stay with you for the rest Definitely. of your life. Um, and it was such an exciting moment. Um I suppose for anyone who's watching that World Cup, anybody in England, you know, with that, that, especially uh, one of some, some of the stats I dug up for the book, there were just 12 live league games that season, 89-90. There wasn't a single live European game on telly. So, you know, just the fact you suddenly had all this football on television was incredible. And all these players who we didn't really know or, you know, you hadn't, you hadn't heard of who Makinaki was or, you know, Benjamin Massing or these people. So it was, it was, it was a brilliant summer, exciting. And, uh, that, when I was asked, you know, do, should we write this book by the Kuberton, the publisher, there wasn't really too much of a, a conversation or, you know, too much thought to be had. Um, but what we wanted to do was, well, what I wanted to do really was to explore, you know, the impact elsewhere. Because we, you know, the story of Gaza's tears, the impact in this country has been pretty well documented. But, you know, I wanted to, what did it mean in Cameroon? What was it like for the, yeah. you know, the Yugoslavians who were playing their last ever World Cup? What was it like for the Argentinians who were the baddies of the story? So, yeah. so it, and for me, it was just so exciting to actually go and meet these people, you know, to sit in Roger Miller's house. And uh, uh, you might be pleased to hear that the fellow mowing the, uh, the lawn in Roger Miller's driveway had a Liverpool shirt on. Amazing. That is amazing. That's brilliant. I mean, this is the, this is what I would say, actually, you've touched on uh, about this book as well. I mean, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke because the author's sat in front of me. I've got stuck into this book. I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it as yet. But what I like about it is, I think when you send a lot of books and things like that, you, 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 want, you know, people obviously want them to be promoted and you get that. And I get why they come to the Anfield Rap and all the rest of it. But... You can get a bit cynical. I used to work as a journalist as well, and you can get a bit cynical when you see someone saying, I'm going to tell you the inside story or something. You just think, are you going to just regurgitate all the stories we know, like you just said? You know, anyone who watched that World Cup will know about, as you say, the tears and Scalacci's eyes and all those things. Um, but there's so much more in that, which, which is what I really enjoy. I mean, you know, the, the, the stuff about Costa Rica, I thought it was brilliant and, you know, I'm not giving, giving away too much of the book, but the idea that the players are getting a car uh, for performing well and then one fella's still kicking around driving it now. 
now in 2018 he's still driving the car he was given in 1990 I love that I love that kind of insight that, that you've managed to get um, and also as well I think you know, for anyone considering buying a book, it's not just blow by blow in terms of the matches, is it? It's lots of different stories, like, you know, that people won't have known around fan culture, around the culture between managers and journalists, that sort of stuff. I mean, I thought that bit was really interesting about Jack, Char- Jack Charlton and Eamon Dunphy basically hating each other. Um, you know, Dunphy because he didn't like the style of football, Jack Charlton because he was being criticised and, you know, the sort of dynamic in press conferences. And it's interesting because, as I say, we're on the eve of a World Cup now. And I don't know if you've seen this, but Copper 90 put a, a really good video out just this week about the relationship between the press England fans and how that all works and so we're basically still talking about the same issues all this time on No you're right Um, I mean I went down to the British Library and looked through so many newspaper clippings from from summer 1990 Um, I mean it's just fascinating I mean I can even get lost in seeing the TV schedules you know Yeah. Um, but just just reading about the amount of stick that um, that Bobby Robson was getting. And now, of course, you know he's cemented in in history as this this saintly football figure. Almost, you know, he, he you know became Sir Bobby Robson. But the, the, I mean, the, the Sun, the Mirror, they were just giving him dogs abuse. Really, um, the Today newspaper was calling him for everything before the World Cup when he, within his own right, you know, he signed that contract with PSV Eindhoven because yeah. the FA wouldn't give him a new contract. Um, and I mean, after the opening game with the Irish, um, the Sun kind of was, was beseeching Mrs. Thatcher to bring the boys home, you know, with ridiculous, you know, overreaction as, as you'd expect. Um, and you know, just uh, when I, one thing that Pete Davis told me, the, the you know the author of All Played Out, yeah. he said that Italian ninety, it wasn't necessarily about the football; it was about the narratives. Because there's so many strong stories, yeah. And again, not just for us, you know, in England, but but around the world. You know, you touched on Dunphy and Jack Charlton, the fact that Ireland suddenly are in a World Cup um, quarter final, uh, and there's this big debate going on at home about the way they're playing football. But also, I think with with the Irish story, one thing which I discovered really was this idea that for the Irish diaspora, it was it was an, a real an, an expression of of. of Ireland as a country it wasn't just a small island you know beside you know beside Britain but all the Irish people around the world yeah were represented by this island team players with you know Cockney accents like uh, Cascarino uh, Scottish accents like Ray Houghton you know they'd all they were representing sort of Scouts a great like John Aldridge exactly yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is a World Cup and you're right to say that there's so many strands to it, so many little stories to it, even right down to, you know, as I say, it's maybe an age thing that you you put it on a bit of a plinth and, and say it was a special one. But I mean, for me, things like just like, you know, Pavarotti and the, the Ness and Dorma, the actual, the mascot was brilliant, I thought, for that World Cup. And I've seen someone recently brought out a T-shirt of it. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's a very good mascot. It, you know, everything about it really, it felt... And I wonder, I wonder what you think about this, having written the book and being the age you are as well. Do you think there's a little bit of the romance has been taken away in the way football's gone? And what I mean by that is, back then, and you've referenced it, you almost wouldn't know who some of these teams were. You wouldn't know who some of the players were. And you're sitting down on your sofa at home 
And it's almost a complete unknown thing. I mean, no one knew what Cameroon were going to do to Argentina in that opening game. And everyone was absolutely amazed by what unfolded, not least some of the tackles, um, particularly on Canija's second half. Um, but do you think we've lost a little bit of that, the way football's 24-7 now and, you know, globalisation and everything being on the television? Well, I, I'm slightly worried just because, you know, as a 40-something football fan, there's bound to be a bit of, you know, nostalgia at play here. Yeah. But but I'd say a kind of reserved yes, because, I mean, there were just two players at that World Cup, not from outside the British Isles, who were playing with English clubs. One of them was Glenn Hussain at Liverpool. Yeah. The other one was Roland Nielsen at Sheffield Wednesday. So we didn't know many of these players. We hadn't seen them. So of course, a World Cup was going to be more more exciting and more of a, you know, more of a, an adventure because there was there wasn't the familiarity that we have. There wasn't, you know, I remember FA Cup final day was the biggest day of the year, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, you had football on all day, whereas now we have football on all day every day. Um, so for that simple reason, I think I think it was different and it had more of an impact. Of course, World Cups are always exciting, but. Um, you know, this was before, this was the last World Cup before the satellite age. Yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about that as well. It, it is it is an important one in terms of that because football changes an awful lot from then on in really, doesn't it? And I remember sort of, you know, you're watching games being played in the San Siro, for instance, and you were like, wow, what a football ground. And, you know, now England's got football grounds like that, but it didn't then, did it? And, and it's sort of important to... I think it's good the way you've documented the sort of social history around it as well in that respect, in that, you know, England was a different place then. Yeah, I mean, the the, the highest attendance that... Sorry sorry to sound like a complete stato. Um, <laughs> right. But then you, you've still got your Italian 90 nerd book, haven't you? So uh, Yeah, we're all the same deep down. We are. Um, but, you know, um, the highest attendance that year in, in, in the English football was 39,000 at Old Trafford. Just to give you an idea of, no no wonder we looked at the San Siro and thought, wow, you yeah. know, 60,000, 70,000 people are there. Yeah. Or the Delhi Alpi or the, um, the, the stadium in um, Naples, the San Paolo. Um, so there was, a, there was, it was on a bigger scale. And you mentioned the opera there. Um, there was this sense of football being an important part of the culture, I think, that came across. And of course, at the time in England, at least, you know, football was seen as something which, you know, proper people didn't really want to be associated with. So, so suddenly there was this football, which was, you know, there was opera. Everyone wanted a bit of it. And England were quite good. And the fans weren't all complete idiots misbehaving. So um, I think that all those forces came together. And I mean, I spoke to somebody who worked for team marketing, sorry, for ISL, who were marketing that World Cup and they then worked with UEFA on the Champions League format and they they basically they all went from Italian 90 to the Champions League so there was a direct kind of connection there with the, the whole packaging of it hence we ended up with the Champions League yeah. anthem yeah um, I mean tell us a little bit about the sort of the process of writing this book I mean I, I think I've, I've picked it up enough in terms of there are an awful lot of strands in there ones that people find very interesting I mean you know as someone me being someone who, who's got involved in a bit of fan activism, if you like, there's a little bit of that in there in terms of talking about the early days of the FSF or what it was previously known FSA, wasn't it? That kind of thing and representing fans and the stories around fans, the way England fans were all perceived in a certain way, treated in a certain way, police tooled up and all the rest of it. I think that's we've talked about that kind of thing on the Anfield app an awful lot. That bit alone is a good read, but how did you sort of, you know, you mentioned that the publisher gets in touch and suggests the idea. 
talk us through a little bit about, you know, how you decide from there on in what to include, where the direction goes, you know, how you leave it out and how you don't end up writing, you know, the doomsday book about the whole tournament. Um, I mean, I wanted it to be a good book because I know what it meant to myself. So I, I therefore knew what it meant to everyone else of my age or thereabouts. And I knew that everyone would pick it up and think, this is rubbish, you know, he's, he's, he's not told the story properly. So I didn't want that. Um, so we wanted it to be as, as comprehensive as possible uh, and just avoid, you know, the cliches, the basic uh, yeah. things that everybody knows anyway. Um, and I looked at the countries where I thought it would, there was an impact, um, which included, of course, you know, England, Republic of Ireland, Germany, the winners, Italy, um, Cameroon, for, you know, obvious reasons is the first black African country to win a World Cup game for a start, let alone to get to the, um, the quarters. Um, Eastern Europe was something I was really keen to focus on because this was, you know, the Iron Curtain was coming down at that time. Um, you know, Romania was was fascinating doing those interviews because Ceausescu had, had gone the previous Christmas time um, and that country was in complete chaos. Um, the players were all looking for moves abroad. They're completely distracted, really, from the World Cup football itself, uh, you know, the, when they look back on that now. Um, the Yugoslavian story uh, I, I wanted to, to, to look into um, you know, Yugoslavia was about to to break up. In fact, they were booed off. They were, well, they were booed throughout their, their last warm up game at that World Cup, uh, which was played in Croatia, um, in Zagreb, um, and the whole crowd was supporting Holland. So, and for the players, that was a shock. Could they grown up together? You know, um, under 16s, under 17s, under 18s, under 21s, and they they saw themselves as you know a team of friends, and yet the that Yugoslavia was about to splinter horribly. Um, the Russian story, you know, last USSR World Cup. Yeah. So Eastern really Europe, Eastern Europe definitely was was a big thing. You mentioned the Costa Rica thing. I wanted to touch on Scotland because, of course, that, that they, they, that's the last time they won a World Cup match. I know, which is madness, isn't yeah. it? Um, and Costa Rica, you know, the, who they were the first time I think a Concacaf nation had got to the second round. Um, so that story was, you know, funny um, with with you know Kayaso, the goal scorer, still driving around in his El Toyota that he was given. <laughs> um, I think up to, uh, the Argentina one. Think sorry, Argentina was. I was trying to get hold of some of the players on Skype, um, and I kept getting knocked back. And in the end, this was I started the book last February, and was still interviewing people February this year. But Argentina, I got to November. And I was chatting to Simon Hughes, who I'm sure you, yeah, yeah. you know quite well. Friend of the show. And Simon was saying, you know, why don't you just go over there? So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go for it. And I went over there and Goi Kachea, the goalkeeper I met, and Bilardo, who was the coach. And eccentric is probably um, understating it. <laughs> um, but to, to hear the, their stories and to get an insight into the Argentinian mentality, because they were hated in that World Cup. They were booed wherever they went. Um, so just to get... The, the, the take of the, the villains of the piece was fascinating as well. So anyway, the, the short answer is I wanted to get the full spread of stories, really. Mm -hmm. And also, one thing I should add is I wanted to look at the legacy. And to do that, I wanted to speak to Blatter because, you know, for all of his sins, and there were many of them, I think they looked at that World Cup as a negative World Cup. It was the lowest scoring ever World Cup. And he and, you know, people within FIFA thought, we've got to change this. We've got to try and protect the playmakers, you know, um, we need to have a better spectacle, more goals. So there was a, there was a definite consequence, a positive, um, you know, consequence after Italian 90 in terms of the way football has been played thereafter. 
Yeah, I mean, that for anyone who who's maybe too young to remember this World Cup and, and fancy sort of having a read of the book and getting a flavour of what happened in this tournament, there's plenty of videos kicking around on YouTube to give you a little flavour and I do recommend that you watch Argentina, Cameroon in particular. Um, some clips kicking around there the last week or so and one with it, which I retweeted, which was just a compilation of the tackles in inverted commas on Kinesia. Um, you obviously get to speak to some of the Cameroon players about that story and what a story it is. Um, Roger Miller as well, who everyone remembers sort of jigging in the corner. And it, there is a romance around it, isn't there? This, this, this World Cup, as I mentioned before. I think it's interesting as well that, you know, I spoke to a few mates about it. I haven't read some of the book and gone back and watched some of the videos. And they were like, some of the football wasn't the best, though, which is what you just touched on, isn't it? It's like, you know, you let Cameroon are really open in, in, in the, the lads you've spoken to, aren't they, about the fact that they intended to kick Argentina off the park and they see Maradona doing tricks before and they're like, yeah, but you won't be doing that on the park, mate. And they, they've opened up, haven't they, to you? They, they're not giving you PR answers. It's, it's really honest stuff in there. No, I mean, they, they, were, they were brilliant, actually. I mean... Uh, it was easier to get hold of Cameroon players than North England players. Um, although when I called Roger Miller and said, will you be around in Cameroon in this week? And he said, well, I don't know, but you just come along. You know, it's a long way to go on a maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, but, uh, but, you know, you, um, in terms of the tackling, they, um, they wanted to intimidate. In fact, Benjamin Massing, who, you know, committed that, the foul on Kanija, um, he was. He said that you know, even before the game in the tunnel, they were singing the you know that they're all battle songs, and he went up to Maradona and tried eyeballing him, but Maradona was you know being Maradona. He he was he just had a comb in his hand doing his hair, so he wasn't intimidated <laughs> in the slightest. Brilliant. Um, but in terms of yeah, Maradona again a stat to just give some you know context to what you've just said there about the fouls. He was fouled 53 times in that World Cup, whereas Messi in Brazil was fouled 18 times, which shows you how much punishment he took. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it came from Cameroon. Um, and although the Argentinians were no angels themselves, we should we should say. I mean, there's two red cards, isn't there, in the opening game? Um, also as well, I think what, what might sort of, you know, like knock people back a little bit of a younger when they're watching it. The back pass is still available at this time as well. So you're watching keepers picking it up. And the, and again, the stuff in the book about, you know, teams being quite open and honest about that. They were using that to their advantage, to time waste, to frustrate. So again, you know, you talk about all the, all the pelters that FIFA get, but they did recognise that things needed to change in the game. That was another thing, obviously, back passes. Yeah. Um, Blatter... Tell me that he watched UAE play Colombia, and UAE were just, you know, trying to defend. Yeah, and, and he he just saw back pass, back pass, back pass, and thought something's got to change here. And Kono, the Cameroon goal, he mentioned this, and I watched that opening game again, and he he had thirteen back passes in the first half alone. Um, so so yeah, Blatter decided, you know, something's got to to be done, and within two years, the back pass law had changed and you know it can sped up football entirely yeah although in one thing i found that interesting was there was actually less playing time at the world cup in south africa you know when they, they count the you know the precise playing time in a game then in the average was was less in for south africa than italia 90 um because pl- there's more play acting now yeah. more players staying down so players have still found different ways to be cynical and to kill time and it's just now the, the, the way they react because you know, one thing watching the clips Maradona would get battered then he'd just pick himself up and get on with it Yeah, and that's changed you know incredibly 
Yeah, the Canija one's amazing, isn't it? Because you know, there's two there's two pops at him, which he stay. You can tell he's staying on his feet. Per you know, he could he'd easily go down. The, these days, many players would do a thing, but yeah, the, the third one obviously completely taken out. Boots come off and all kinds, and um, and the red card rightly follows. But yeah, football has changed an awful lot, and I think you know the book tells you that. Uh, videos tell you that as well. The other one I wanted to get you on, and no doubt everyone knows does this. Where I'm, I'm guessing uh, if the interviews have been of a certain age, is to ask you about Scalacci, um, top scorer in the World Cup, but then basically doesn't do a lot else with his career, does he? And and everyone sort of remembers those mad eyes, the Sicilian and, you know, the the, the great goal celebrations. Brilliant goal as well. I think it's against Uruguay, isn't it, where he hits it from miles out and it goes in the top bin. And yet, you know, I, I guess there's lots of people listening to this show right now going, who? Um, and that's madness, isn't it? It's mad the way you, you can get these stars that just shine in one tournament and, and literally drop off the cliff. So what was he like? Yeah, he was... Um, it, he, his his dad was behind the bar at his football school in Palermo and his dad looked like, I thought, he should look like, you know, 28 years later. Whereas Scalacci looks almost younger now because he's had, you know, new hair put on. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit of plastic surgery applied because he's been on reality TV and so on in right, Italy. Okay. Uh, but he was, he was really open and interesting about just how nothing had prepared him for that. You know, eight years before that, when Italy won the World Cup with you know, Paolo Rossi as the hero, he was on top of a bus in Palermo celebrating with a flag in his hand and, you know, a danger of falling off because he was just playing second division football then mm. for his local team. Or he's about to, so he's about to join Messina then. Um, whereas, you know, f- more recent World Cup stars, and I'm thinking maybe, you know, Ronaldo, uh, Messi, Rooney, these were all set on that path to stardom yeah. probably from before their teens. Whereas, you know, Scalacci wasn't anything like that. Even the November before the World Cup, when England played Italy, he was in the B International against playing against Gaza. Um, and, you know, somebody else who's, you know, what wasn't necessarily meant to be the star that he became in that World Cup. So Scalacci, for him, he, he never scored for Italy before. He was expecting to be, I think, fourth choice striker. Came on in the opening game, scored. Stayed in the team, scored. And he scored in every game bar one. Um, and he, he just, you know, he, he couldn't cope with it afterwards, really, because he stopped being, well, he was still obviously in his head, Scalacci from, from Sicily. Yeah. Whereas to everybody else, he was Scalacci, the World Cup star. And he, he just, I don't think he could, he, he couldn't produce that every week, because who can? Yeah, exactly. Um, unless you're a great, great, great footballer. Um, but... He, he, I mean, he left Italy quite young when he was about 30. He went to play in Japan for four years, enjoyed it. His autobiography is incredibly colourful. I mean, he he probably in his, I mean, in terms of scratchy scoring, his record with, 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 the, with the ladies is pretty, I think, uh, <laughs> that, that seems to take up half of his book. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the Scalacci scoring in, in terms of the World Cup was, was just one of these stories of that World Cup with the eyes, as you mentioned. One thing he said about football and the way it's changed, he, he, he and again, I, I always think of the way Liverpool attack now, you know, with these incredibly quick transitions with three, four players, you know, bombing forward together. Scalacci's viewpoint when I asked him about the modern game was that um, players like him you don't really see nowadays because he was just a poacher. And he said, you know, I could win you a game, but I could, I could disappear as well. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. He thought the players then... You had your individual battle and you used a bit of skill or trickery 
to beat your direct opponent, whereas he thinks it's much more of a team and a tactical game now. Um, so anyway, that's I just throw throw that in as well. No, it's really interesting stuff, and you know, so th- th- there's lots and lots of stories. It's a series of stories. We've mentioned quite a few of them already. Uh, there's there's other people that you get hold of, Roger Miller as well. And um, there's bits on England, there's, of course, the Brazilians, um, everything else. Uh, well worth a read, as a, as I say, and I can't wait to get sort of stuck into the rest of it. What 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 are your favourite bits from it? I mean, you know, I, I'm guessing that. You know, you, you had a bit of a plan, and, and maybe some things didn't work out. That, that's what I'm gathering from the way you said. You know, you, you try and get whoever you can, and then it, it sort of dictates itself a little bit. You know, what are you what are you particularly pleased about? What what, what did you enjoy working on most in all these different sections in the book? Um, I, I possibly the Argentina side of it. Um, I was lucky enough to speak to the goalie Goicochea, who another accidental hero that World Cup really he was the reserve goalkeeper Pumpido the, the first choice broke his leg in the second game and he was awful in the first <laughs> so Goyke Chay comes in and he, by the end of that World Cup he, had, he was being he was given his own postcode in Buenos Aires because he'd become such a hero because wow. um, he, he saved the penalties against Yugoslavia then against uh, Italy in the semis so he was brilliant in kind of opening a door for me into just what it was like there for them and uh, I mean just the fact that he you know, he told me the story. He's, he's got a restaurant near Buenos Aires called Italia 90, would you believe? <laughs> um, but he, in, in the, the semi-final shootout against Yugoslavia, before the game, he, before the shootout, sorry, he'd taken on loads of liquids, you know, really hot day in Florence. Couldn't use the toilets because he wasn't allowed into the changing room. So he actually had to pee on the pitch before a World Cup shootout and then did the same before the next shootout against Italy in the semi because... It was superstition now. So, I mean, getting that kind of detail, it's just, I mean, it's gold just really to a journalist. So, so Gary then wasn't the only one going to the toilet on the pitch then? Well, thankfully, England and Italy didn't meet because that might have been a, you know, Goikachev <laughs> versus Linux in the penalty box in a shootout. Does it be an interesting? Um, but, so the Argentina story and Bilardo, of course, hearing all about his dirty tricks and just the stuff they'd get up to. I mean, he was obsessive. Um, he'd stalked the corridors of the team hotel at night because uh, he, he couldn't sleep himself and if he saw a player's light on he'd kind of go in there and talk football with them and even at his wedding sorry married on his wedding he, he asked uh, Ruggeri one of the Argentina defenders to um, to dance with his wife next to Careca because he didn't trust the official height he'd been given of Careca and he wanted to see how tall Careca was next to one of his own centre-backs so just <laughs> you know so they were just he was a bit bonkers really but it's somehow Argentina with you know, Bilardo, the Maradona, get get all the way to the semi. Um, the Yugoslavia story was also very rewarding, just to because you know, there's all of those players from the different Balkan republics, all of them with a different angle on what happened. And um, I managed to track down the fella who he he had the penalty saved, um, which ended that 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 quarter final in the shootout. And he's got an incredible story about working with. Um, Karadzic, who at the time was was the uh, kind of occasional um, psychiatrist for um, is that the word for um, FK Sarajevo, and he went on to become one of the, you know the, the butchers of the Balkan conflict, and yeah, he was in the club wow. giving pep talks to the players, and the players visited him in prison. Um, so just the, the, the Yugoslavian stories are fascinating. Um, obviously, that they're so wistful, really, when they've got a real sense of what's been lost. You know, they had that incredible team, all those talented players. 
and they, you know, Darko Panchev, this striker who ended up, you know, playing for Inter Milan, he scored the winning goal and the winning penalty in the European Cup final for Red Star. I remember that. I, mean, I he, loved him. He was saying, you know, I, we we could have won a European Championship, we could have won a World Cup. Because the last ever that last game, they, they played as a United team. The midfield was um, Stojkovic, Savicevic, and uh, Prozanecki. Yeah, which isn't it's not yeah, a bad, it's not field, bad. Is it? it's not bad. I mean, yeah, that, that is an intriguing bit of it, as is the the Russian bit, as as you say as well, and, and and how the makeup of that team was all of a sudden broken up, and you know, talk about Kanchelskis in there, don't you, and stuff like that. Um, a more a more sort of tabloidy question, if you like, uh, give us because you you obviously will have looked over this World Cup in depth, watched all the goals again. You said about going down to the British Library and you know look, looking back at all the headlines as well. In terms of sort of incidents, goals, whatever you want, what, what are your what are your top five things that you enjoyed most, if you like, when you revisited this World Cup? I mean, because I've done the same a little bit for this interview, if you like, and and those things I'd forgotten about. One of the things I'd forgotten about, for instance, was how good Baggio's goal was. It passed me by. I'd forgotten it had gone, but as soon as I watched it again, I was like, oh wow, what a goal! I remember this now. So with the moments like that for you, and what were the best ones? Yeah, um, blimey, five. Um, okay, not, not necessarily in order here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, watching again, the um, somebody at FIFA gave me access to their TV archive. Oh, and brilliant. that came with Ron Atkinson's commentaries. Right. So uh, after England beat Belgium, you know, with David Platt's goal, yeah. um, they, they'd done the commentary and, you know, the, the, the broadcast has stopped, but I, I'm watching it and you can still hear them talking off air. And Brian Moore, Ron Atkinson... Well, I can turn to Brian Moore and said, you know what, we could be the worst ever team to win a World Cup, which is just really, <laughs> well, it's funny for a start, but it also shows you that, you know, we look back on that England team as being dead good, but they're actually pretty lucky to beat Belgium um, for a start and then Cameroon. So that made me laugh. Um, also, when I rewatched the, the semi-final, obviously, and um, after Gaz has done his tackle on Bertold and Bertold goes down, what I, what I hadn't seen and what I never realised was that Gascoigne kind of pats him on the head and says, you know, maybe, all right, all right, all right, mate. But then he sticks his finger in Bertel's mouth, which I'd never seen, no, I'd I've never, never heard about. Um, and I thought, you know, <laughs> that's just an example of Gaz's mischief. Yeah. Because um, everyone just remembers the tears and obviously Gary and saying, have a word with him and all that sort of stuff. So no, I've never got onto the sneaky finger in the mouth either. So okay. yeah, I, I, I just think you should look up that one again. Um, I'm just trying to think what else. Uh, I mean, the 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 the, the challenge again. The Argentina, Cameroon. We, we've spoken about the uh, the battering the Kinesia got, yeah. and, that, and you know, amassing's tackle of all tackles. But about 20 minutes into that game, his defensive partner Victor Endip, who I also met in Cameroon, who's not a not a big fella, but he actually tackled Maradona and, and caught him in the shoulder. Um, which is 20 minutes into the opening game. And you remember all the fuss about um, you know, Xabi Alonso? Yeah. Um, so, yep, got done by De Jong in the World yeah, Cup yeah. final. It was a really similar tackle to that, but a bit higher. And it just showed how football's changed because there was no fuss about that at the time. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he even got... I don't know if he got booked or not, but, but you know, the fact the game went on, Maradona's already kind of got a dent in his shoulder 20 minutes into the World Cup. So that was something else that, that I'd, was, was a bit of a shock to me. Um Costa Rican World Cup song was a shock 
because we, <laughs> I think England took a, a step forward with World in Motion in that tournament, and the Costa Ricans did this thing, which was more like back home, you know, our, our 1970 yeah. World Cup song, and they were on this. I found this video of them singing it on some, you know, Costa Rican talk show in shell suits. And the fact that Costa Rica, there's actually a film made about Italia 90 called Italia 90. But that, that, I spoke to the filmmaker and just to know that, you know, we've got our stories and our, you know, r- romantic fables about World Cup's past. But, you know, just to see what it meant to a place like Costa Rica was 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 funny and, and, and lovely to kind of uh, to find out. And that's four things now I've discovered. Yeah, that's four. I've down on one more, blimey. Um can just be a goal or a tackle or do you know what I mean? It's a game. moment. Uh, sorry, just silence on air. No, it's it's fine. Um, I put you on the spot yeah. to be fair. Four is fine. Four is fine. We'll go with four. Um, all right. Well, the other one I wanted to ask you is um, it does change, and, and probably another reason you know you wrote in about this World Cup in particular, it does change, and we touched on a little bit before, sort of perception of football and of England and that sort of thing because you'd have all, all these sort of you know a long time of, of failure if you like and Bobby Robson says himself that he can walk away from a semi-final with his head held high and, and most people will look back on it fondly and say he did well there um, you had the Gaza tears and everything else and I mean you're good, you're good on your facts and figures so I wonder if you've got one around this it felt like at the time that everyone watched that match, every even people who weren't football fans. And so I just wonder how significant you think that moment was for football in this country and, you know, as a precursor to Sky, the Premier League and everything else and the product we've got now. Because, you know, I know we've talked about it on the Anthony Rap before about you just sort of presume or, or it's easy to presume if you're, if you're a younger fan maybe that, Football, you know, has always been huge. Everyone goes to match. Um, you know, Everton's always been a sellout. And in fact, if you look back, it's not the case at all. I mean, once upon a time at Liverpool, there's, there's 35,000, 30,000. First game I go to is in 1990, and it was only a cup game. There's only 17,000 at Anfield. So you wouldn't get that today. So, you know, I, I guess the marketing people and people who set up the Premier League and whatever else would say, well, we've done our job. But... Also, I wonder whether you think there was just a moment in the national consciousness almost about that game, about that semi where lots of people got switched on to football. Yeah, I mean, I I was wary of just assuming that because I know it, it's it's kind of a well-told, familiar yeah. narrative and you know we do tend to buy into easily. I mean, a record TV audience watched that semi game against Germany. It was about 26.2 million. I've just checked now the intro of the book. Um <laughs> reading some of the papers even immediately afterwards in sort of the following day the day after that people like um, Michael Calvin and the Telegraph were saying you know feels like something's changed here um, Jeff Powell in the Daily Mail says you know, the rekindling of a nation's love affair with the game that it invented so at the time there was I think there was a the press were, were thinking you know something, something's happened here um, I mean of course I mean what, what I look back at this, the attendances in the lead up to 90 they had risen in the football league um, from 1986 onwards because I think 85, 86 was, was the low the low point um, in terms of the, the average attendances in this country so things were beginning to change um, even prior to this and of course Martin Tyler the, the Sky commentator 
I, I wanted his thoughts on this and asked him for the book. And he he thinks that, um, I mean, that Beast Guy Beard started broadcasting before Italia 90 in March 1990, did his first England game for, for satellite. He thinks the satellite television was going to happen anyway. Um, of course, Hillsborough had happened, the Taylor Report, the stadiums were going to change. But Italian 90 probably, and the, and the reaction in this country, it, it, it pr- created a mood, I think, where certainly sponsors, advertisers, big companies would have looked at football and thought, you know, this is a, an attractive product again. It's a sellable thing. You know, Gaza mania was everywhere. You know, he, I think it was in number three in the chart with Fog on the Time. Fog on the Time, A few yeah. months later. You know, <laughs> sellable the, the, song. The, the fact you have, um, you know, a Pavarotti song, you know, Ness and Dormer going to, I think that was number two in the charts on the back of a World Cup. So it, it was, it wasn't the only thing, of course, which, which led to this change, but I'm sure it gave a real impetus. Um, and it, it showed people who wouldn't have been interested in football that hang on a minute, football can be glamorous, it can be exciting, it can draw in, I guess, you know, a middle class audience. So, so in short, yes, but I think there's you know there's different factors to consider. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's just get a little bit about uh, about you as well. Uh, no more putting you on the spot with five moments and all that sort of stuff. Um, this is your second book. Uh, we've got to mention at some point that you are a blue nose. Don't don't let it put don't don't be put off people. Uh, he's an all right blue nose. It's a good book, honestly. But I, I'm not sure we can recommend Here We Go Everton in the 1980s, which is your previous book. Um, but you know, worked worked in sports journalism since the 1990s. Uh, written for the Independent, worked for UEFA, and it says here uh, you've been to the past five World Cups as well. So tell us then, you know we. Uh, how is writing a book? And this is your second one now. Is it something you're getting a bug for or is it something you think, I'm glad that's over with? Is it a bit of both? Would you would you go again? What's next for you? And, and, and are, you, are you planning another book? Well, the first thing I've got to do is I've got to think of the fifth thing for that list. <laughs> uh, but no, it's everything that you've said. Um, I mean, it's extremely daunting, um, especially if you want to do something like this well about a World Cup. You know, I went to 11 countries in 10 months. Um, wow. So there's loads of traveling. There was loads of research. Um, I mean, the writing on top of that, you know, it was, I think there's about over 300 um, pages of this book. So it, 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 took, it took over my life, really. Uh, it wasn't a, it, I think it was as an Evertonian, it was, it was a good season to be lost in 1990, really. Um, I can say that. Um, so yeah, I'd love to do another one. It's just the first one was about the Everton team I grew up watching. The second one was about my favourite World Cup. So I'm not quite sure, you know, where I go Where'd from here. Where you go next? Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if I'd recommend it for anybody's health or relationships because it does take you out of, you know, the, the game really in terms yeah. of normal life. Um, it's pretty time consuming. But uh, but you know what a privilege, what a, what a pleasure to you know sit down and meet these people you watch on the telly as a teenager. That comes across, to be honest with you. That does come across in the book that you know you obviously have enjoyed doing it. You put the work into it, as I said at the start, and I'm really enjoying it. And look, I, I have got a terrible habit, I've got to be honest, of starting books and not finishing them. And there's about six of them kicking around on a shelf, all looking at me saying, "You haven't finished me yet." But I'm definitely going to finish this one. Um, the other thing, I guess, we've got to ask you as well is, um, given that you've been to a few of them and you've just written a book about one of them, um, what, what are your thoughts ahead of? The World Cup, which does start tomorrow at the time we're talking. Um, what are you looking forward to? Who do you think is going to win? That sort of stuff. 
Um, well, it, what I found interesting even in the last couple of days is all we've heard are kind of negative stories about Russia. And mm. I suppose inevitably with, you know, the whole geopolitical situation and all the other concerns about, you know, Putin's regime. But once World Cup football kicks off, everyone gets dead excited. Yeah. So so that's interesting. And, you know, you see that shift in the papers in the, since, I guess, since the Champions League final. Yeah. Um, am I looking forward to it? Yes. Um, obviously not as much as when we were, you know, youngsters and we didn't get much live football. But um, I'm going over to... Um, to do a couple of games for the the indie um, in Volgograd, I'll be seeing hopefully Salah. Um, you know, assuming he's fit Egypt against Saudi Arabia. And this is their first World Cup since ninety yeah. as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, some I hope they're still in. That's their last group game, so I hope that you know there'll be some in a stake there. And um, Iceland, Nigeria is the other one. Um, for some reason, they weren't on the top of other people's list of games they wanted yeah, to see in the that. paper. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I'm looking forward to going there and just just getting the flavour of what it's like. I went to the draw in um, December, and I mean the Kremlin in the snow with Christmas lights. It was completely you know beguiling, and they obviously know to put on a show and to impress um, for whatever propaganda reasons. You know that's a separate <laughs> argument, maybe, but. So I'm sure it'll look impressive. In terms of the football, like, sorry to kind of drone on like a, a middle-aged fella here, but, you know, I, I, I've spoken to a few mates and thought, you know, recent tournaments, how many memorable games have, have there been? I mean, how many games do you remember from the Euro, say, or the last World Cup? I know, I was thinking this yeah. when I was watching it. I mean, you know, it is hard though, isn't it, to, to, to figure out, is it you being a grumpy old man, is there a bit of romanticism about the past? But... As I said to you before, I've been reading the book and when I watch the video, back, I watch an hour-long BBC programme about the 1990 World Cup the other night and it was fantastic and I absolutely loved it. And I did think, I feel like I've watched a lot of crap World Cup games since that time. Do you know? I mean, there have been some good ones, but I don't know, it does feel like a bit of an iconic tournament, I guess. And I'm like you, though, about the current one in that I've been a bit shruggy about it, but now we're getting close. I'm getting excited. Quite fancy the idea of uh, Costa Rica kicking about again. I want to go to Costa Rica as well. That's a separate conversation now. But, uh, who's your fancy then to win it? That's the one. Um, it's hard to be original and say anything that doesn't involve the words Brazil, Germany, the France contenders as well. I don't know. I mean, with England... I think that I like the fact there's less hype around England is, yeah. and lower expectations. And Southgate, I think, deserves credit for that because he seems likable, he seems realistic, and that's obviously you know got come through with his players as well. That media event they had where they're all available was just so refreshing. Yeah, you know, it was good, to, wasn't it? Just to see these players, you know, available to talk, which they should all be really. Yeah, and we should have more of that. So no, I I, I hope. I hope for Southgate alone to England, you know, have a decent World Cup. Yeah, it does feel a lot nicer, I agree, and that that, that 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 pressure isn't there, that expectation isn't there, that ridiculous bumping up of them, and, it, and it's more a bit. Yeah, they're, they're all they all seem an all right group of fellas. Southgate's all right as well, and, and it's hard to sort of you know dislike any of them really. Um, certainly, if you. You know, of sound of mind. Um, all right, Simon. Well, that's been brilliant. Really enjoyed the chat. Um, I guess the book is, is is available in all the usual places, as they say. Um, so online in bookshops. It, it's out now, isn't it? You, you're doing a launch event with Simon News as well, aren't you? When's that? Yeah, that's we're doing something actually tonight at Waterstones in Liverpool. But yeah, it's it's on sale in 
as you say, in all good bookshops, hopefully in the bad ones as well, <laughs> and um, the Cooperton website and Amazon as well. So, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, give that a try. World in Motion, the inside story of Italia 90, the tournament that changed football by Simon Hart. Uh, Simon, thanks very much for coming in. Really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.